This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. By 1945, the war in the Pacific was supposed to be winding down. Chuck Tatum, who was yet to turn 18, dreamed of becoming a Marine. He signed up before his 18th birthday and found himself in boot camp preparing for unknown duties. Before long, he would land on a distant island whose black sandy beaches foretold the evil that awaited them inland. The island's name was strange and unfamiliar to the young men who landed there, but later it became known to generations of Americans as the finest hour of the U.S. Marine Corps. Its name was Iwo Jima. The following is an in-depth interview with Chuck Tatum. These are his experiences in his own words. I was in B Company, 1st Battalion, 27th Marines, 5th Division. And February 45, your rank was? PSC. Okay. What attracted you to the Marine Corps? How did you get into the Marine Corps? Well, one of the first things that attracted me was a John Payne movie. It says uh, Pride of the Marines or something like that was the name of it. And there was that blue uniform. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't like the Army or Navy uniforms, but I thought, boy, it'd really be good to come home and swallow the gals with a blue Marine uniform <laughs> if you could get in there. And, of course, uh, whenever I joined up and went to boot camp, and you could imagine the extreme disappointment when I found out that they discontinued dress blue uniforms. <laughs> but I was attracted by the... Uh, there's a guy in front of the post office on a poster, and here's this Marine. He's in on the deck of a battleship, apparently, and the American flag's waving in the background. Here he is in dress blues. And I thought, boy, what could be more glamorous or romantic than being a Marine? Let's talk about getting in the Corps now. What, what are some of the uh, things you're what – you, what did you want to do in the Corps? You want to be an aviator or, you know, what, what did you want to do? I didn't know. I didn't even know. Hey, I have to tell you, I didn't even know they had an army. <laughs> I, I didn't know what they did, really. And it didn't really matter because John Payne never had a job or anything. He never did anything except they're on some kind of romantic thing. And But, uh, no, I didn't know when I went in that we would be a soldier, you know, flag fighting in the, in the Pacific or anything like that. And it was just the – but the idea of being a Marine and, of course – I was when I was 17. I pestered my mother for so long about joining her signing the papers so I could go. And finally, one day, she had her belly full of me, and she said, "Okay, if they'll take you, they can have you." <laughs> so she signed the papers, and I uh, went down to the post office and gave the guy the papers and everything. And two or three days later, they sent me to San Francisco to be a, get a physical and see if you were eligible to become a marine or become a recruit. And, of course, I passed all the physicals and everything like that. I came back, and I thought, well, it would be a little while, they said. And, but about less than a month, they gave me these tickets to go to San Diego. <laughs> what do you think the Marines were trying to accomplish in that boot camp? In your well, ultimately, later on, I realized I didn't know it at the time as a 17-year-old kid. But the idea was to dismantle you and reassemble you, <laughs> dismantle you as a civilian and reassemble you, reassemble you as a Marine. And to do that, they had to take all your former, everything away from you, you know, that you had before. You were, didn't have your mommy, your daddy, or anything. Now then, you've got this hard-nosed corporal that's a drill instructor. And he didn't look like anybody's mother to me. <laughs> and uh, 
But it was really interesting, the, the disassembly of you as a civilian and the recreation of you in their image as what a Marine should be. And this took some mental adjustment, and it took physical adjustment. And, uh, hey, I have to tell you, about the 34th day, I would have ran over the hill if I could found the hill. <laughs> but, it was, but after a while, though, you got uh, uh, acclimated to it, to the routine and the fact that nobody – that your life wasn't worth spit to him or anything. And then I had one of, I, one of the most worst things that happened to me in, in the Marine Corps was I'd been, I think boot camp was eight weeks in those days, and I was in the sixth and a half week, and I got sick with a, with a form of uh, pneumonia called cat fever, catral fever that they had prevalent in the San Diego boot camp, you know, from all these people coming together. And I was in there for ten days, and I got out, and I thought, well... They told me to go over to this assembly station and that they would uh, give me a new assignment. So I tried to tell the guy at the desk, I said, hey, you know, I had six and a half weeks in when I went in the hospital. Oh, you did, huh? And uh, he's looking down this list and reading, he turns the page, and he said, okay, you're with platoon 684, whatever the number was. He said, and they're coming on that bus right over there. Go over there and get with them. I said, Jesus, those guys are just starting. He said, yeah, and you're starting over. So I was the only guy that did boot camp twice. <laughs> How did you emerge different uh, at the end of that? Considerably changed. You know, I went from 150 to 175 pounds. Uh, I was really transformed, I guess, from a, a kid into some form of a, a marine, a recruit, a rookie marine as far as that goes. But all the uh, civilian tendencies had been washed away, and you were recreated as this person that the Marine Corps wanted you to be. You know, they had discipline was one of the things that they told you to do, and you had to do what they wanted you to do. And there, there was no back talk, no second anything. You didn't say, yeah, I can't do that, because they wanted you to do it. And you did it because you didn't want to appear that you couldn't do it among all these other men. And the, the transformation from a kid to a man, to a, a more manly Marine, was quite a transformation, actually. So let's go from, uh, from basic. You've completed basic, and uh, you're uh, preparing for your first combat. I mean, getting, you're, you're shipping out. You don't know exactly you're going to Iwo yet or anything like that, but... You were going to be leaving, I think you were training in Hawaii. Well, we, we first, as we got out of boot camp, they sent us to Camp Pendleton, and they were forming the 5th Marine Division. It had, didn't exist at that time. When I got out of boot camp, it didn't exist. It was, it was just a brand-new division, and they had these Marines coming from all over the world, all over the United States, descending on Camp Pendleton, and they were going to make a new Marine Division out of this unit. And they brought in the paratroopers and the raiders. They brought all those people back from overseas, some of the early early combat veterans of Guadalcanal. And they used these sergeants and uh, officers as a nucleus to build this division. And uh, then they, they poured the recruits out of boot camps. All the people that had recruiting duty, had been in Washington, they ended up at Camp Pendleton. They're in the 5th Marine Division. Tell me about meeting the, the hero of them all, John Bassalone. Well, yeah, my number one hero of everybody in the Marine Corps at that time was a guy named Manila John Bassalone. And I just got out of boot camp, went to Camp Pendleton. I'd just gone in the barracks and been there one day, and I was the first guy there. 
There's nobody in the barracks. Well, there's one other guy, and he was asleep all the time. And I was, they were just forming it, so they hadn't even, the people for B Company hadn't got there. And then one of the second or third day, here comes a, a real good-looking Marine in there, and he, I can see he's a sergeant. Jeez, I'm up at attention like he was an officer. And uh, he introduced himself as John Bassalone, Sergeant John Bassalone. And, of course, I'd heard about him and read about him and knew that he was a Medal of Honor recipient for Guad from Guadalcanal. So then another guy came, and he took charge of us two guys. And one of the first things he had us do was detail the entire barracks, get all the cobwebs and wash the windows. There's a lot of windows in a big barracks. <laughs> we had to detail the toilets, you know, the heads, rather, and everything like that to get it ship shape. He didn't do anything, but he had us, me and this other guy, doing this. And, uh, and each day, every time, uh, he would march us <laughs> up to the mess hall about a quarter of a mile away. Just the two of it. What was your impression of Barcelona? Jeez, I was in awe. You know, here's here's a walking, living legend of the Marine Corps. How would you ever be in his platoon? And he told us he was going to be in charge of the machine gun platoon. And, of course, my little slip from boot camp said, go to Camp Pendleton and join the, the machine gun platoon at B Company. Of course, and here he was. It turned out he was the he was a platoon sergeant at the time. And uh, so he was our... You know, here's the foremost instructor uh, and the expert on machine guns in the world, or at least in the Marine well, in the world, if he was in the Marine Corps. And uh, C. Barcelona was a professional soldier. Well, a lot of people don't realize that he spent four years in the Philippines as a soldier in the United States Army before he became a Marine. And uh, he was one of the few guys that, when he went in the Marine Corps, he came in as a PFC and didn't have to go through boot camp. <laughs> of course, he was already been a corporal or sergeant in the Marine Corps, in the Army in the Philippines. How did he come across? Was he just this natural, magnetic, charismatic? What kind of guy? Yeah, the Why? first time I ever heard of the, I didn't know it at the time, was the word that you would use today as charismatic. You know, he had charisma. He had the instant ability for people to like him, you know. You just didn't, and you'd have never known that he had a Medal of Honor from his lips. He would never have brought it up, mentioned it, or anything. But he was just, to say he was a regular guy, uh, he was a regular sergeant. <laughs> Somebody said, well, how well did you know him? I said, well, I was in his platoon. We didn't go on liberty together. <laughs> we didn't pull. Platoon sergeants don't take PFC or privates on liberty with them or anything like that. But he had friends among the sergeants and everything like that. But he was uh, just an, in fact, he was almost, uh, he had a lot of fun. He could fall into formation with his head on Napoleon style, crossways. And no officer ever said anything to him about it. <laughs> or he'd fall in with his boots his shoe, boots unlaced and give some kind of a funny salute, you know. But it was just part of his personality. He, could, he was just a fun-loving guy, really. <laughs> and uh, people wondered why, he, after you won the Medal of Honor, why would you go back into combat? Well, they forgot that, that he was a professional soldier. This is what he did. This wasn't some wartime interlude on his part. And if you're going to be a professional soldier, you have to go where the fighting is. He, they wanted him to stay in Washington. They gave him every opportunity. The commandant, Holcomb, offered him a desk by his. He told him, no, he wanted the fleet. Give me the fleet. And uh, he often 
I never heard him express this to me or anything, but he expressed the thought to other people that he couldn't hang around Washington when there was guys in the field yet. So let's talk about uh, getting ready for EWO then. Uh, you only find out about your specific objective when you're on ship heading out. Yeah, uh, the colonel came on and said that uh, we were going to go to a place closer to the mainland of Japan than any battle so far, and we we're going to a place called Iwo Jima. And, of course, I remembered it from the film. Mm -hmm. And, of course, some of the other guys never saw the film. And uh, then they were breaking out these little models of it and everything like that. Tell me about that. There's a photo of you looking at one of these things. Yeah, we were aboard the USS Hansford going from uh, Hawaii to the Mariana, I mean to Saipan. And every day we trained and they instructed us what our job was to be when we hit the beach. In our case, we were to land on Red Beach too, advance to the airstrip and help cut the island, sever the island in two. Once we severed the island in two, we would turn oblique to the right and go up the side of the island going north. I think it was north. And we had practiced that on land, not knowing that's what we were doing. You know, on the, in Hawaii, we'd have these make-believe landings, and we'd go, and we'd advance so far, and then we'd turn and go to the right. So uh, they, they were able to instruct us. And in that picture, there's our captain, Son, S-O-H-N, is describing what we're to do, and uh, we had it down pat. We knew exactly what we were supposed to do, except when we got to the beach, it all became fouled up. Before we get to talking about that specifically, I want you to put your sort of uh, expert big-picture view mm -hmm. hat on and tell me why EWO. What was the importance of this, and why it was it important that so many Marines would try to take this island? Well, the importance of Iwo Jima became apparent after they captured Saipan and Tinian. And they had inaugurated the bombing raids uh, uh, emanating from Saipan and Tinian to bomb the mainland of Japan. Now, the B-29s had attempted to bomb Japan from bases in China, but it hadn't been successful, and they wanted to go to saturation bombing, which had, uh, they had used in Germany, where it's to such great effect, where they were able to cripple everybody and the defense mechanisms and munitions factories and everything like that. So that's what they wanted to do. And the planes taking off from Saipan, Guam, or Tinian to go to uh, go to Tokyo was like the round trip was maybe 3,400 miles that they had this kind of range. But they couldn't get past Iwo Jima without having the fighter plane stationed there and come up and attack them. 600, it was 600 miles from Tokyo, I mean from Saipan, to there and 600 miles on to Tokyo. So, but as they tried there, they couldn't have enough range to f skirt it. And when they got there, the Japanese planes would take off, fighters would come up, and they'd have to fight the, uh, fight the, the fighter planes off. And, but they were so good, they could fight, land, rearm, and go after them again. They could catch them. And then, of course, with the radar on there, they were able to notify Tokyo, the B-29s are coming. And it's only 600 miles, so they're going to be there within two and a half to three hours. So the planes from Japan came out and met them. Fight, you know, fighters came out to meet them and tried to blast them out of the sky. And then they fought them on the way back. Then on the way back, the planes took off from Iwo Jima and fought them again. So the, they were dumping those B-29s in the ocean so fast that they couldn't even make them enough 
to keep them up. They they were losing 20 to 25 percent of them per raid. So this is going to wreck the whole thing. But if you have Iwo Jima, this unsinkable aircraft carrier, 600 miles away, if you own that, you can build an airstrip you can land a B-29 on. That made Iwo Jima the most valuable real estate in the whole world at that particular time, this eight square miles of volcanic ash and sand or whatever it was. This became very important to both sides. And the American high brass finally recognized that they needed this place and they were going to send the Marines in to get it. And, uh, and of course, they didn't realize in the, after Tinian and Saipan that they had had such a buildup there, so rapid, and they could do this so fast. But they had from uh, July of 44 until February of 45 to fortify it. And they were good at it, and they did it, and they built all these caves. And at Iwo Jima, everybody, 21, 22,000 people, however many soldiers they had, lived subterranean. There was no buildings above ground. There was no trees. They cut everything down. They stripped the land, and they set up all these predetermined fields of fire. They didn't even have to move the guns. When you walked into this sector, advanced to it, they could open up with that sector's weapons. What was defense in depth? Explain that. Defense in depth is... Uh, uh, the term, military term, is defended triangularly in depth. You have one, tri one point here and here, and if you attack point, the A point, the, these two points back here can shoot at you trying to attack it, and if you get it, they can leave that and go on subterranean back to the other, and they fell back, they got stronger and stronger because the triangle was ever-widening in their defense in depth. And uh, the military term was uh, defended triangularly in depth. And they, this was how the basic thing was set up. Now, you were on one of the first, if not the first, wave. We were in the first assault wave, yeah. There, had been, there was a wave before us where the Amtraks, they had some armored Amtraks that went in and looked for targets of opportunity. There wasn't any, and they turned around and went back into the ocean and, and went out later and fired their, Pakhauer, their weapons from the shore, from the ocean into the shore. And, uh, but we came in in those amphibious tractors from an LST. Describe that uh, coming in. You know, what, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What's going on? Well, the, uh, I was a machine gunner, and aboard the Amtraks, they had 250 caliber machine guns, and the Navy didn't operate them. Whoever went in had to operate those. And uh, my gunner and I, my assistant gunner, Steve Evans, and I were operating these 50 calibers coming in. And we, we're sitting up high, and we can see, and everybody else is hunkered down in the tank. As we're circling around and everything, I had to describe to Wendell, the sergeant, what was going on. What's going on up there, Tatum? He'd holler. I'd say, well, they're blowing hell out of this place. You can't even see the island anymore. They, but they had all these battleships and all these air, aircraft, uh, aircraft bombing it. And they actually, it obscured the island from the smoke and debris and haze and everything that was created by the bombardment. And I realized at that time I was probably witnessing one of the greatest bombardments of World War II. You know, uh, having this choice seat <laughs> setting up there. And, and uh, as we're coming in, we're supposed to look for targets of opportunity, you know, for the machine gun. But one of the things that they had in the critique and all the training ahead of time was the fact that the, the Japanese had this supposed plan. They had all these drums of gasoline moored in the water. And when we got to certain places, they would explode this on us, you know, on the... Uh, Amtrak's coming in, and as a consequence of that, we were issued a, a white protective screen, a, a cream that you put on your face. To, 
and you put it on your hands and arms, and and uh, pretty soon all your buddies look like Halloween ghouls, you know. Well, let's talk about hitting the beach. What uh, what's it sound like? What's it look like? What are you doing as soon as you hit that black sand? Well, the the coming in there was no. Sh- we were expecting to be shelled, but we weren't shelled at all. There's no. It could have been a small arms fire, but we weren't aware of it one way or the other. And uh, as we get, you know, as we get closer, uh, Steve and I are manning these 50 calibers, and I don't see anything to shoot at. But to I get vent my frustration or something. <laughs> Both he and I fire fire them at the beach, you know. And Wendell says, "What are you firing at?" And I said, "Well, nothing." He said, "Well, quit wasting ammo," you know. A gunnery sergeant again trying to tell us what to do, and uh, we're coming in. And but there's where the area we're coming in had some uh, outcroppings of rocks called the Fatsu or something another rocks. And instead of being able to go straight in to stay in our formation, we had to swing out around this coral reef that blocked it. You can see it in the maps of Iwo Jima. Some people went one way, and we went the other. And as soon as we hit the beach, the Amtrak was to go in, turn 90 degrees, they dropped the ramp, and everybody ran out. Except Steve and I had another job. They had sea rations in wooden boxes lashed to the sides of the Amtrak with ropes. And we had been instructed as machine gunners to get off our thing, go cut those rations loose, and kick them overboard, which we did. Except the tank guy was so anxious to leave Iwo Jima... (laughs) He started down the beach with us aboard, and he and before we can get the stuff dropped off, he's gone way down the beach, and he's looking for a way to turn back in, and we have to jump for you know off this ten or ten or foot height of this Amtrak down to the ground, and we did, and when we did, uh, when we got reorganized later on, we can't find anybody from our company. Where we can't find B Company, and we must have landed in C Company. And uh, the first thing that happened to me and to Steve was we ran up the wet part of the beach, and we could hear this airplane coming in, you know, with its roar of airplanes. And we look up, and here's this torpedo bomber coming in, and it's you know the pilot's dead, and. The, it was stitching the sand with machine gun bullets in front of us. We just got there, and they're doing this. And then the, the plane crashed into uh, an Amtrak out on the water that was returning. And uh, so our first danger on the beach was from falling airplane parts coming down. They exploded and went all over everything. But then we decided we better... He and, there was nobody there but he and I and the, some other people we never knew or anything. So we decided we better start going inland like we were told. So we start trying to climb these terraces. And uh, I was in good shape. I probably weighed 180 pounds then. And, uh, but to describe my uh, paraphernalia, my battle gear, I had the tripod... 14 and a half pounds. I had a canteen. I had a folding stock carbine. Uh, you wore, As a machine gunner, you wore it in a sling, like gunfighter style. And as the machine gunner, they gave me a scabbard. 
that had the spare machine gun barrel in it. And that's lashed to the other leg, machine gun, you know, gunfighter style. Plus your pack. Plus they decided that since we had lost an ammo carrier on the way to Iwo Jima, that I would carry another ba box of ammo in my pack and no, you know, uh, along with my other stuff. So I had 20 pounds, and all, I figured probably I had maybe 60 pounds of gear. And I'm trying to climb these terraces. And it was a go a little ways and slide back. Go a little, and it was totally exhausting. And then the sand got in your mouth. And there you became, and of course you're scared. You got cotton mouth anyway. And uh, it was, it was uh, an ordeal trying to get up those banks. And Steve and I are ahead of everybody else. We don't know where anybody else is, except we're trying to do what they told us. Describe that black sand and how it was trying to move through that. Well, the granular part of it was such that it didn't stick together. You know, sand as sand will pack. But these were actually volcanic crystals instead of sand. We talk about sand, but they weren't. They were volcanic crystals. And they didn't adhere to each other. They didn't compact or anything like that. And uh, so they... Uh, they, you couldn't make it. They didn't even know that. They knew the terraces were there, but they didn't know the composition of it to speak of, and they didn't know it would be that difficult. I've heard it described as walking on uh, BBs. You know, kind of like that. It's like digging in a wheat bin, you know. <laughs> you dug in it. I described that way one time, and it would just fill back up. But we, fought, we were fighting our way up there and uh, looking, and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, am I going to be in trouble? Wendell's going to be mad at me for getting lost and not being with the platoon, you know, and on and on and on. And uh, But we couldn't see anybody we knew, except I saw some guys from C Company that I remembered. And that's where we were at until later. And uh, this is where Basalom comes into the story. What, in general, what's the commotion like? I mean, is, are there people, are the Marines taking hits around you? Is it mm -mm. fire anything or what? There's no fire at all yet. There's no one shooting at us or anything. It's so quiet. You could hear the motors coming in of the, of the next waves, and we could see the other waves were piling up. And, of course, the Japanese didn't open fire on the first wave. They want three or four of them. They want the beach compacted with people before they were going to expose their plan. Because we had really expected to be shelled coming in, you know, why wouldn't you be? They did it everywhere else. But there was no no uh, appreciable, there was no shell fire directed at the Amtraks coming in. Um, on the first objective, I mean, I guess we can talk about this where you're not trying to knock out that bunker in Barcelona and you're seeing this larger-than-life figure start to take over. Can you... Describe that, pick the story up from there. For about Barcelona? Yes. Well, uh, you know, the, about the third wave, and Steve and I are on the second or third terrace about this time. And uh, when I look back at the beach, there was uh, the only Marine enlisted man I saw standing up. Now, everybody else, including myself, was attempting to dig to China with their hands. <laughs> and I look back, and here's a guy standing up, walking, on the beach. And I'm thinking, Jesus, why didn't they? And I realize it's Barcelona. And the people who stopped never even got to the terrace. He's kicking them, saying, get up. You're going to die on the goddamn beach. You know, get going. Get get inland. Do as they do. And uh, so that was the first time. 
I looked back and I saw Barcelona. Then the then the bombardment, then the the shelling started. The Japanese unleashed their full might of their uh, assault on 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 our on us on the beach. And up ahead there, and not knowing any better, I see this. I see this black sand explode, and I thought, boy, that was a hell of an explosion, you know. And then I see another one and another one there. I thought, God darn, that guy put three in a row right in the same spot. And by this time, Barcelona and his people have moved up to where Steve and I are. And Barcelona comes over there, and he's... He said, you know, gave me the signal. There's a signal, you know, means go in action on this, on my point. And I can't see anything. I don't know what's happening. But we're trying to get the machine gun ready. And Steve gives me the ammunition. I pull it back and the thing won't fire. It's got sand in it. So I have to roll over and he takes my cleaning gear out. I have to clean the machine gun on the beach during the explosions and everything. But we get it cleared, and Barcelona. Then I can see the wind blew the smoke away from this thing. I can see the muzzle of a, a field piece shooting down the beach into the Fourth Marines. And Barcelona gave me the signal, and I started firing at it. And it wasn't doing what it wasn't hitting right. And he moved us obliquely to the right, made us move, gave the signal to move to the right, and we started shooting at it at the aperture of it. And of course, they slammed the steel doors closed. Somewhere, Barcelona found, the, probably from Ralph Belt's uh, demolition squad, he found a demolition man. And they have a trick where you can keep firing and the guy will walk right up the field of fire until he gets, as long as you keep it closed. And when you get there, you're to quit. Well, whenever the guy got to the right place, Barcelona whacked me on the head, on the helmet, to cease fire. So I quit. And this guy runs with the with this 10-pound charge of composition C2, and he throws it at the aperture of the machine of this field piece. Of course, 10 pounds of C2 could open up anything. <laughs> so it blew the doors off of this machine gun thing, this uh, emplacement, rather, this blockhouse, huge blockhouse. And then Barcelona gives me the signal to commence firing again, and now he's kneeling down beside me, you know, and Steve and I are firing into it with a machine gun. And then he sends a guy up with a flamethrower. Found the flamethrower from the same demolitions. And he walked it, and then he had to stop firing. And the machine gun, the uh, demolition guy with a flamethrower goes in, gives it a couple of squirts of that deadly napalm into the aperture of the field piece, like shooting into the body of building of the gun. And... Uh, I, boy, this, I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I've only been here an hour, and this is really exciting, <laughs> dangerous. And uh, then Barcelona stood up a straddle of my body. I'm laying down on the sand firing, and he reaches down, and he unhooks what's called the pinnel hook, which leashes the gun from the tripod. And he leaned over and screamed in my ear, get the belt. So I knew that, so you can't fire a machine gun in a thirty caliber unless somebody feeds the belt in right. Otherwise, it'll jam. And he grabbed the machine gun. And the machine gun had a handle on the front of it called the Barcelona bale. And he grabbed it by the bale and the thing. And he starts running up this area leading to this where the, the gun housing was. And as we get to the top of this revetment or this area, the Japanese start running out. 
of the back. And they've got this napalm all over them, on fire. And he takes a machine gun as they run out, he shoots them all. And they just fall dead. And uh, I used to think it was kind of like a mercy killing because I figured those guys were dead already. They were dead. <laughs> they just hadn't fallen over yet or anything. And that was our first experience in combat. <laughs> and for this, uh, for his actions there that day in, in eliminating this huge blockhouse on the beach at Iwo Jima, he would receive posthumously the Navy Cross. Probably should have got a second Medal of Honor. Many, many people thought he should have for this action. So Here's your, your, your first hour in combat, and there you are with, you know, the... A combination of John Wayne and Rambo. All in one, yeah, the, my hero. <laughs> and to have participated to, uh, well, I always thought of as being a partner, a partner to history to some degree. It wasn't, and uh, the fact that he took charge. But the, the really the thing that he did, too, was to get people moving off the beach. You know, it ground to a halt. You know, I could see that the, the forward motion of these people had frozen. But his actions, and people saw him and us attacking this pillbox, made everybody move and really get organized. And then he gave me back the machine gun, and, and I gave it to Steve, and I picked up the tripod, and he gave the, there's a signal, follow me, as an uh, officer, sergeant can give. And the ones that were there, there's 18 or 20 of us in this group. He started leading us across the uh, island, we are out of the sand dunes now, and we're going, uh, Murayama number one ended abruptly. It had been filled and had a steep, and there was this flat area of vegetation, some vegetation, and he was leading us across there, and we went across there, and we went up onto the first airstrip at the very end of it where the planes turned around, and we got into a 16-inch shell hole, you know, all of us, and then the Navy started shelling us. You know, the, we got ahead of the rolling barrage. We're getting, <laughs> we're getting fire from the mortars at one end of the island. They're trying to shoot at us from Suribachi, and now the Navy's trying to do us in. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have our marker strips, you know, for airplanes. And uh, it was my idea that we should go back and get online with the other people. And Basilone says, no, <laughs> stay here. I'll go get more people. And he left us there, and he told us, stay there, come hell or high water to stay there and uh, he went back to the beach to get more marines and uh, I don't know how long it would be in real time or now whether a half hour you know, there's no relation to time at that point and we look across the area that we just came across and Barcelona has this other I can see it's Barcelona but they could have been like two football fields away yet from us and uh, we can see all of a sudden a mortar shell lit among them and kill Barcelona and five other Sea Company Marines. So he, he was dead within the first hour and a half. America's hero. What did you experience? I mean, what did you think as you're watching this? Did you have a premonition? Did you see no, I, did, I was just, I, I became incensed at the Marine Corps that they let him go back. You know, thinking, Jesus. Here's this guy, all the world to live for, 29 years old. He's more handsome. He was a handsome guy. He looked like, looked better than John Garfield or some of those movie actors he used to pal around with. 
And here he is, he's killed on Iwo Jima. And I thought, boy, this is really, why would the Marine Corps let him do this, you know? Of course, then I, later on I realized it's what he wanted to do. What did that say to you about your own mortality? I thought, boy, nobody, <laughs> don't count on anything. Anyone's game here. You could be going a flash. You know, you realize that that was the, uh, that nobody, because we had made it all the way up there with nobody getting killed, you know, at that point. And a lot of people said that they were ba with Basilong when he got killed. And if everybody that was with him when he got killed had been there, they couldn't have hit him. <laughs> it would have been thousands of guys. <laughs> and I wasn't with him when he got killed, but we saw it happen from from where we were at. Now, we were on the middle of, in the middle of this big shell hole, and the way the airstrip was laid out was to our front, and the Marines were attacking on that front, and as they drove the Japanese out of the area along the beach, they had to try and run across the airport. Well, we had the only machine gun up there, Steve and I, and these other guys had were infantrymen. There was nobody, nobody in charge. We didn't know there was no officer or anybody there, just us guys. And we spent the entire first day in this shell hole up in the middle of the airport, airstrip on Motoyama 1. And at first when the Japanese tried to leave their place, we would uh, use a machine gun. Then we realized we only had one box of ammo left. And it could be a long time <laughs> before we saw anybody or anything. And, and to tell you the truth, I, we didn't probably expect to make it through the day where we were at. The most vulnerable, you know, right in the middle of it. If, the only reason they never got us from uh, Suribachi, which was maybe 2,000 yards away, was they couldn't load their, they didn't have it in their target range. They weren't prepared to shell their own airport. And uh, so uh, we spent the first day under constant shelling by all these people, all the, all the Japanese and the Americans. And, uh, but everybody, nobody, made, pretty soon, they had let the guy run all the way across before they shot him. Like, I hate to say this, kind of like a turkey shoot, you know. But it, it seemed important at the time. <laughs> and uh, that was our, but around 4.30 that day, we could see the Marines coming. And, uh, and then in the lead was Wendell, my sergeant. And he was glad to find us. And later on, about an hour later, he came over to me and he said, Tatum, he said, from now on, you're in charge of the machine gun section, your, your squad, rather. I said, what do you mean I'm in charge of it? He said, it just turns out right now you're the ranking PFC <laughs> in the platoon. So that's how I got to be a squad leader on my first day at Iwo Jima. It was a real blood promotion, so to speak. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. Uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. 
Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, at what point are you figuring out that it's not this, you know, that there's not this uh, three to five day sort of exercise in front of you, but you're dealing with a serious campaign and you've got uh, Japanese that have, uh, the notion that they had created this fortress underground, that they were We just, we still didn't realize that. We still, at the first day, nobody knew of that to speak of. Maybe somebody had discovered it or something. But... The first day, you have to remember, at the night of the first day, we occupied less than 5% of that island. We had a strip from one beach across to the other. The 28th Marines had turned left and, uh, on a line and attacked Suribachi. The 5th Marine Division had turned to the right and was going to the north. The 4th Division had linked up and we'd joined with the 4th Division across the island. But this is a strip less than several foot, maybe five football fields, 500 yards. It's a very thin strip. And that's where we're at. Now, we're getting fire from both sides. We're trapped. We didn't realize we were trapped (laughs) in this segment. And they could shoot at us from Suribachi and from the other end. So that's what we found ourselves at the the first night. And... uh, we expected the bonsai charts. In fact, we got set up for it, you know, because we knew they'd, they'd done this all the times before and there'd be a bonsai chart that night. There wasn't one. They didn't do that. They'd changed their tactics. They weren't throwing manpower and wasting it and all that kind of stuff. So we were relieved. To, I was really relieved to wake up the next morning and find I was still alive. <laughs> How did you operate through the night? I mean, tell me about... Did you gain sleep? You rotate sleep? Well, it was, a, it was a 50% alert, meaning every other man had to be fully alert. And the fact that uh, you uh, did two hours and another guy did two hours. So it was a two-hour rotation. But you, when you're so cranked up on adrenaline, you know, the whole war's still going on at night. You know, they didn't call it off because it got dark. The, they, the Navy shooting these star shells illuminated the whole place. And when we quit, the Japanese shot them, thinking we were getting ready to attack. So they illuminated the whole battlefield all the time. Every night, it was, uh, they would fizzle out, but there'd be another one come. And it was eerie looking. And then the first night, to see that flickering of those star shells and this white face, really gave it a ghoulish look to everybody. And, uh, but to me, it was more terrifying at night than the daytime because at the night, the Japanese could come out of their case and operate, you know, they're familiar with the terrain and we weren't. And Marines never, never moved at night. You know, there was an unwritten rule that if you moved or got out to help yourself or feel the tend to the call of nature, you could be shot because they, anything that moved got shot. They didn't care. It was just a rule, and that was the way that we protected ourselves against infiltrators. Right. Now, what about uh, your biggest fear? I mean, was it snipers? Was it mortar? Was it 
you know, the, the bonsai charge. What were you most concerned about when you were moving and taking a position? My biggest concern was that I'd run out of luck, <laughs> run out of chances. How many days can you stay there and not get killed? All these other guys got killed, and here you're still here. And you you could have kind of a survivor guilt, you know, after a while. Because from my squad of seven men that we landed with, two of them got killed on the beach. Corporal Whaley got killed, and Thompson got killed. So the squad of seven that we landed with is five. And, and what that means is that uh, you're short of ammo carriers now. And uh, but the I think the fear that most most people have was first off, uh, you could certainly get killed here, and every day you're there, or you, have you used up your chances, or the dice rolled wrong, and that was kind of the thing in the back of my mind. But I always felt I was going to make it somehow or another. I felt. I was going to make it, and I had guys that told me they weren't going to make it, and they didn't. How did you get yourself motivated to do what you needed to do every day for, for more than a month? Well, I wasn't there a month. I was only there two weeks, but it was every day you had to just gather up your courage and go because there's no way you're going to let these guys down. There's no way you're going to flake out on them or not go. When they say saddle up, you got ready to go. We're moving out. And everybody got up and moved out. I never saw a Marine fail to get up and go. And uh, and I think that other people felt that same way, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't, couldn't let anybody down, you know, after all the people we'd lost and everything. And, and uh, our company, B Company, landed with 258 men. And later on, they and they had 258 men with eight officers, and they left with one officer and about 32 to 36 men, if I remember right. And half of them had been wounded once already. And not counting the replacements that we'd received during the battle. The attrition was really horrendous, you know. In fact, the, the 27th Marines as a regiment was so ex, uh, used up, so expended in the battle using all the people that finally they, they had to make a composite battalion out of a regiment. They took all the units that were left and made one battalion, combined them all together because they had to fight. See, the 5th Marine Division fought six or seven days longer than the others because of the island as it narrowed at the other end during, uh, in the Badlands, as they called it back there. The 4th Division got squeezed out. Then the 3rd Division got squeezed out. But the 5th Division had the last, roughest part of it where General Kuribachi's headquarters were. And some of the heaviest, nastiest fighting went on in these rocky gorges and revetments and everything like that. It was, uh, it was beyond the 3rd Airstrip that this started. The terrain was always bad, but at, at the end of the 3rd Airstrip, it was really horrendous. And... Uh, couldn't have found a worse place to have a battle. I think you described it as uh, between a rock and hell. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, that was that would be a, that was, that was a, a good description of this land. And and uh, a lot of people, I only knew of maybe just a few guys that made it all the way without anything happening to them. Who are you fighting for? What are you doing this for? 
I was probably fighting to stay alive, <laughs> basically, and uh, to make it through it. And, and of course, uh, for you to make it, other people have to make it. So you have to be concerned with everybody. And uh, the losses that we suffered in B Company were so horrendous that it was just... I was trying to... I met some guys and I said, hey, what outfit's this? They said, B Company, 27. I never recognized any of them. They were all replacements or come from other units to come up there. I didn't dislike them or anything, and, but uh, they came up as ammo carriers, and uh, I didn't want to know anything about their girlfriend. I didn't want to see their mother or pictures of anybody. I didn't want to lose them like you lost other people. Great, great story. Um, how about something on artillery and, and, you know, your Marine Corps artillery coming to your rescue and its impact on the battle? Well, uh, I knew that, uh, see, the, the, the artillery we had was pack holsters there because they couldn't use long rifles or anything like that because we needed to shoot, they needed to shoot shells up that came down in a short distance. So they, but they were way in the back. They were still, when they unloaded them on the beach the first day, they set up and they probably fired there because there's pictures of them with enough brass around it, <laughs> shells and everything like that. You know, the, the, and I don't know how many rounds they fired. But we were always glad to see the artillery open up. Although in all, all honesty, it never did anything to the emplacements. <laughs> When you consider their, their, their sanctuary is eight foot of concrete with reinforcing bar and everything like that. See, the only way that we defeated the Japanese at Iwo Jima was with uh, Composition C2 and the flamethrower. Tell me about the flamethrower and its impact. Well, if we found an aperture or an opening to a cave, which there was a lot of them, they were hard to find, but you could go up there and you could shoot the flamethrower in it and it incinerate people that were in there. But the worst thing, it, the best thing it did for us, all caves have to have air ventilation shafts that go to the surface. And you could look up and hear, here comes the, the debris or smoke or haze or whatever out of the air shafts. So they go to the air shafts and drop 10 pounds of C2 down it. And that's basically how they took the island towards the end of the, the battle was... There was nobody to shoot at. As I say, a lot of people never... I saw more Japanese than most anybody on Iwo Jima because of our experience the first day. But other people never went through the whole battle because why would they expose themselves <laughs> when they could shoot you from a... Of course, we were protected by about four ounces of green dungaree. <laughs> that was our armor. So it really was subterranean. They, they it were, was subterranean. When I'm telling you it's subterranean, there was, they, they were sugar mills, all kinds of buildings there. They tore them all down. They were all made into bunkers. There was the whole thing. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. The whole thing was defended. This Kuribayachi. See, the Japanese soldier was a lot different than the Marines. These men had been soldiers in China, you know, in different battles already. So when they come to Iwo Jima, they were experienced. Soldiers, fighters. And some of them were Marines, some of them were naval. They had all kinds of people there, you know, different 
uh, branches of the service, and all of them had a, a certain function that they performed there. What did you think about them as, as warriors? I was impressed. <laughs> you had to be impressed with the, the people that can make those kind of defensive positions and man them. And they're going to man them till the last man. There is no no hint of surrender on their part. They're, they're, uh, I think it's a code they call Bashudo or something like that, which is the warrior code. And, you know, they've already been pledged to die for the emperor. And uh, I guess in their belief at that particular time, or so we were told in the Marine Corps, that if, you got, if they got killed fighting for the emperor, they had a, their ticket punched straight through to the Japanese version of heaven, wherever that was. And so you're dealing with people who have a religious and cultural zeal to defend their country and to die for it. Now, the Marines wanted to live and fight for their country, and they, they were prepared to die for it, to defend it and whatever. And, and of course, a lot of them did, 21,000 of them. What about some of the things that the Japanese soldiers did, the Marines that they captured and hauled into some of those caves and things like well, that? Well, I'm not really cognizant of that. It could have ha I don't believe it happened very often. And uh, it could have happened. But I have no, no known in all my research. I never found a, an authentic case of that. There was a Marine photographer named Ganast that went into one of the caves, and he got killed by the Japanese because the caves were all booby-trapped, you know, you could find this nice-looking cave, and there could be swords and stuff laying inside there. Don't attempt to go in there, because they'd have trip wires over. They could explode the whole thing. One night, we were up there on the, beyond Hill 362, and we were on a ridge, and below we could hear the Japanese digging and doing all that. And then they, they were trying to get them to come out, the interpreter was. And they told them, no, they weren't going to come out. They were going to blow the whole place up. That night, they blew that ridge up with us on it. It was like a, I guess it would be like a earthquake. They, I don't know how much, they blew it up. Marines were laying everywhere. I got through it all right, but uh, they blew that ridge up like they said they were. They committed Harry Carey or whatever they called it at that time, Harry Carey. Kind of hard to sort of rationalize with these people and get them to surrender or anything when they got nothing. Oh, no. We had, we had uh, they had loudspeakers. They had everything. Because, see, if we were to, we were instructed to try and capture prisoners. Whether we weren't just to randomly kill them or anything like that. But if we could capture a prisoner, that was really because they wanted to take them back and interrogate them. And the Japanese, uh, they told you anything you asked them. There was no... Uh, the no name, rank, and serial number with these guys, they'd tell you anything you want to know, the name of their unit, how many guys there was, or anything. Because in the Japanese mindset, their military mindset, these men were instructed to die for the emperor. And if you're going to die for the emperor, then you don't, uh, there's no instructions on what to do when you surrender. So they would, they would blab their mouth off, <laughs> tell them anything they wanted to hear. Because nobody told him not to. Let's talk about uh, your witnessing the flag raising. What did you see on top of Sir Baji? My, yeah, I can. I recall it clearly. Uh, Steve and, and I were digging in an emplacement. We were down in this, going towards the the north end of the island, and we were in a flat area, kind of like a plateau between. We were between the first airfield and the ocean. 
In fact, the ocean was only less than 100 yards from where I was at, where we were digging in. And at that time, we were on a, under a mortar attack, severe mortar attack, using phosphorus shells. And they were exploding them uh, at what they call time over target. And it would shower, shower this magnesium down on you, which was deadly. And instead of digging down deeper, Steve and I were attempting to tunnel <laughs> back into it to get more protection. And I'm digging away, and he's kicking me on the foot. Tatum, Tatum, he says, look at this, look at this. I go, oh, what the hell do you want? I turned around, and he said, look, there's the flag. And here it was, the flag on top of Suribachi. And, of course, uh, the ships, there was a lot of shrilling, of you know, blowing of whistles and things like that. And, and there was a momentarily, I didn't applaud because I was still trying to stay alive. And uh, what it really meant, in retrospect, was the fact that we wouldn't be shot at from both sides. That was my thought about it. Thank God they took that Suribachi, that ugly rock up there. Tell me that again. What did it mean to you immediately right then? It meant immediately to me that we wouldn't be shot at from both sides. But this strip of land we were in, they now had removed the menace from one side of it. But at this time, we still don't have much of the island. I'd say less than 30%, if that much. And uh, what, it, what we didn't know at the time was that the real battle had just begun. Well, we talked a lot about what happened I mean, in that real battle. Can you tell me about how or when you felt you, know, you and the other Marines there knew it was over? Give me this, you know, they, they proclaimed, I think it was uh, you know, Forstall or whoever. Well, Holland, Matt Smith, uh, they declared the island secure, I think, 15 days before the Japanese heard about it. <laughs> they didn't tell them that we, were, that we had won already. And some of the most hellacious fighting happened after that, up in the gorge, up in the Badlands. And... Uh, the 5th Marine Division had horrendous losses up in that area when, after we were the only ones fighting. And there was no room for anybody else to fight, so no one could come help them or anything like that. But uh, it was premature, but it was to satisfy the people back home. How did you get off Evo? I was, uh, excuse me, I had a case of combat fatigue, I guess, was the only way to describe it. And uh, I know one day we were... Uh, we'd been on, we were up beyond the third airstrip, you know, doing something up there. And uh, and all of a sudden I realized I'm sitting on a rock out in the middle of this flat area. And I don't know where everybody went. And then I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? And then I thought, well, you better go find somebody. <laughs> if you stay here, they'll think you're deserted and the Marines will shoot you. <laughs> And uh, so I start looking. That's when I ran into guys. I asked them where uh, B Company went, and they said it went over that way. And through, this is a, like a phenomenon or something. In, in through these rocks, these crevices, comes Sergeant Wendell. And he came and got me, and he took me back to where the platoon was. And he said, are you all right? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm all right now. And uh, But... About an hour later, he came over and he grabbed, uh, got me and stood me up and, or didn't, he said, you're out of here. 
I said, what do you mean I'm out of here? He said, you're out of here. Get your ass to the back. Go get some help. And uh, Tremulous, the, the section leader that was there, had dysentery so bad he couldn't walk hardly. And he said, and you're out of here too. So he sent Tremulous and I both back. What do you think Wendell saw in you that he Oh, he probably saw I had a thousand-yard stare or something. I don't know. See, people who have combat fatigue never know it. You know, they think they're all right. Otherwise, you know, they... Uh, and later on, I thought about it, and I thought... And Wendell told me that... I met Wendell many years later, 50 years, 40 years later. And he said that uh, he knew that having lost Steve and Whaley and on and on, all these guys had probably ganged up on my emotions. And it was hard to deal. See, how many people ever see somebody they kill? No, killed. Very rare. Then when you see all these people you knew, killed under the most violent of circumstances. Combat fatigue would be kind of like uh, a guy described it this way. He says, well, what if you every time you started to cross the street... You almost escape getting run over by a Peterbilt truck. Now you got to do this 300 times today. What would your emotions be? How did you feel leaving Ewell, getting off, seeing that island in your rearview mirror, as it were? Well, the, I didn't know what we were supposed to do. You know, he said, go to the back, and we went to the back. And we didn't, I was looking for maybe a, field, a hospital or something, you know. And didn't see anybody. Hey, they're back there. They're building roads. The CBs. Never, there's no battle going on back there. It's not like where we're at. They got. They're recreating a, a a world back there. There's people are taking showers and eating real food and everything like that. And as good luck would have it, we're walking down this road, and here comes a black soldier in one of these ducks, one of these motorized duck vehicles that they brought artillery in. And he asked, uh, hey, Max, where are you going? We said, we don't know. And he said, well, hop aboard. And he took us, and he was going out to a destroyer to get something from a destroyer that was out there. And we rode out there in the destroyer and got off on a destroyer and spent the first night there, you know. And, of course, these guys are really tickled to talk to somebody that was there. But the next day they take us to a ship called the... Uh, the Doyen, USS Doyen, APA number one. And uh, it was the first troop transport made during the war. Even had tile showers, tile floors, everything. It was really like a little luxury liner. And uh, so that's where they left Tremulous and I went the first day, second day after. And as uh, I thought the war would never end. I knew they were out to get me because we're aboard the, the ship and it's laying you know, how many yards off the island, I don't know. And the Japanese decide to shell this ship from the island. They put one on one side of the bow, one on the other, and the third one tore the, the boom off the ship. And they got all these, there's ambulatory marines, and there's ones, they're so full, they're laying on stretchers all over the forward deck. And here comes all this debris, wood, teal, cable, but nobody got hurt. Miracle. Pretty soon you can see they got that 
that ship in gear and it's leaving that territory real quick. <laughs> so we went from there to Saipan. What did they do for you? I mean, did they do anything? No, huh? they didn't do anything. <laughs> There's nothing you can, how can you treat combat fatigue or anything? But just being off of there, you start to recover immediately. You know, your outlook improves and everything changes with that. And uh, I didn't have any pretty nurses or anything come console me or anything like that, like other people I knew. But uh, the, the uh, fact that, uh, well, the first thing I did, I didn't have any money. And they had a PX there. But the PX don't give you anything <laughs> unless you got money. So I sold my carbine for 20 bucks to a gun-happy sailor. And Tremulus sold his for 40 And I thought, Jesus Christ, are the Greeks better salesmen than I am? <laughs> and we went down and loaded up on ice cream at the, at the pokey bait at the ship stores and bought some clean clothes, clean underwear. And the, the only thing they could ga give us was Navy clothes. So I had to walk. I, had, I spent two or three weeks in uh, cast-off Navy dungarees. People thought I was a sailor, which was... I would have given you 40 bucks for your folding stock carbine. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about what, uh, how you assess that this was worth it. I mean, there's the facts, I mean, about the B-29s and all that. Well, I knew it was the, the, first, the first day I saw a B-29 land there. You could see how important it was, how happy those guys were to find a piece of land they could put that, you know, B-29s were the biggest, most expensive airplane in the world. And here they come in, they're, all, they're painted, you know, there's no paint on them. They're just silver because they could fly so high and they didn't want to weigh them, even paint them. And they landed that thing there. It pretty near rolled into Japanese territory. They repaired it and it took off. And you could see that this was really important to them. And after the war, the statistics on it, of course, was that that the capture of Iwo Jima, even though it cost 6,800 American lives, that there was 25,000 airmen saved, not counting the B-29s, by the conquest of Iwo Jima. When you think about Iwo Jima nowadays, what, what are your first thoughts? What are, what's that first image or that first feeling that you get when... Someone said, were you at Iwo? Or, look, there's that flag picture again, you know, or whatever. What uh -huh. for you? Well, uh, first I was proud to have been a Marine. I'm proud to have survived Iwo Jima. I'm proud to be a messenger or courier or, or relator of tales or stories regarding it. And uh, it's through my good luck to be a survivor that I feel this strong obligation to perform this. And I know many people feel the same way. And when I see, uh, you know, to this day, if they play the Star Spangled Banner, I can see that flag. I can see that flag on Suribachi. I think it represents America. It's our freedom, you know, the, the fact that uh, this, this flag raising became uh, an icon of the war or uh, was used in so many ways and probably the most duplicated photo of all times in my opinion I guess someone told me that one time and uh, to this day uh, I can't listen to that without seeing that in my mind's eye the battle for Iwo Jima 
became the bloodiest in Marine Corps history. But for survivors like Chuck Tatum, it also represents the best the Marine Corps and the United States has to give. For despite the 23,000 U.S. casualties, including 5,400 dead, the flag atop Mount Suribachi is a symbol of his nation's willingness to fight for freedom, liberty, and the right to a better life, no matter what the cost. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld, Brian Donovan, and Rod Pyle. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.